A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. I want to start today with a very brief discussion of some geopolitical developments, let's call them. We've promised to do that this year because we think, as we have said several times, that geopolitics are going to be as important a driver of markets, of our lives um, this year as, as anything else. And in terms of financial markets, I think the interest rate outlook remains important, but it's been joined by what's going on with respect to, frankly, war and peace throughout the world. I was listening this morning to an ex- U.S. ambassador to NATO. He reminded me very much of a character called Dr. Strangelove from a movie that some of our listeners will have uh, seen. I think you've seen it, haven't you, Jim? I have many years ago, yeah. Yeah, and this is all about a character who essentially ignites war, nuclear war between Russia and America. And Dr. Strangelove, by reputation, was modeled on an economist called John von Neumann, who was a mathematical game theorist. And game theory, as a result of this movie, Dr. Strangelove, became all the rage, um, which is a bit strange for a very mathematical discipline. And it was all about nuclear deterrence, something that I'm afraid is in the front of many people's minds these days. And game theory back then had a very simple exposition, which is that if one side had nuclear weapons and the other didn't, then the other side was deterred. It worked. The problem is when both sides have nuclear weapons, or indeed similar weapons in terms of their ability to, to wage war. And then it's all about credibility of the deterrent. If the other side believes you to be weak, to be feeble, to be flabby, then they actually have rationally, not morally, of course, or ethically, but rationally, the other side has the incentive to launch a preemptive nuclear strike on the weak uh, will. Sorry, can I interrupt you there? Um, I remember in the nuclear politics of the Cold War period, I remember reading books in the 80s by people like Lawrence Friedman, 
who spoke about mutually assured destruction. And, and does this fly in the face of what you're just describing in terms of game theory? No, I, I think it captures it exactly, which is that mutually assured destruction was where they do have credibility, that one side believes the other will retaliate if they are attacked. So in which case that is mutually assured destruction. So they don't attack. It's when you don't have mutually assured destruction that one side, rightly or wrongly, believes the other side for whatever reason. Maybe they are appeasers, maybe they're weak, maybe they're stupid. If you believe the other side is weak, it is rational in some versions of game theory to launch that preemptive strike. We didn't have that situation. The only preemptive nuclear strike that we had, of course, was in the Second World War when America attacked Japan with two weapons against an unarmed Japan. So that's an example of, I, I guess, deterrence not working, because, or, or maybe deterrence did work because um, America couldn't be deterred because it was the only one with nuclear weapons. The point about this guy that I was listening to on the radio, the ex-US ambassador to NATO is that he sounded a lot like Dr. Strangelove and he was having a go at Biden for being so weak and flabby with respect to responding to Iranian, effectively Iranian aggression in the Middle East. The outpost that was attacked in Jordan, where three American service personnel sadly died earlier this week, has not, as at the time that we are speaking, been had elicited any kind of a response from Biden. And this ambassador was arguing that he is appearing to be so weak, so flabby in not responding that uh, all he's doing is encouraging the other side to attack him more. And shades of that game theory that I was talking about. And that the only right response now, and this is the Dr. Strangelove bit, is to hit back hard, really, really hard. And I, I don't think he said this, but I, I inferred from what he said was that he actually wanted certainly some Republicans, Republican senators, have called for Biden to hit not just these Iranian-backed militias in places like Iraq, Jordan, Syria, but to actually hit Iranians in Iran, which would be strange love-style escalation. And I, I just wanted to say that I think all things considered, Joe Biden has played a tough hand very well. He was criticized for not giving Ukraine sophisticated weapons early enough because of the threats made by Russia to escalate if he did. Putin said that he would use nuclear weapons if necessary. We now know that Putin was bluffing, or at least he is bluffing up until now. We didn't know it at the time. And I, I think that uh, we need to cut Biden some slack. And the situation in the Middle East, ghastly and awful, that though it is in Gaza in particular, and we're not going to talk about that today, but outside of Gaza, the situation has escalated a bit but it hasn't been anything catastrophic. And that's the thing that I think everybody was worried about. Everybody's worried about Gaza, but in terms of pure selfishness, if it was going to escalate outside Gaza, then we were all going to be in serious trouble. And so far, I think Biden has, contrary to what this strange love character um, on the radio this morning talking about uh, criticizing Biden, and indeed the Republicans having a go at Biden in general, um, they, uh, I think Biden's doing very, very well. And I think that speaks to something that I touched on earlier, which is that I think that Biden is going to win against Trump in November. And you said, I think, a very loud prayer that that would be the case, but expressed some skepticism and rightly pointed out time. it's a long time until then. But again, this is, this is the geopolitical angle, and, and we will be talking about this 
as we go through the year. But I think a couple of things have happened since I made that minor, very tentative forecast. Please don't pin me to the wall on it. I acknowledge how easily it could go wrong. But first of all, the economy keeps getting better in the States. And uh, the most recent readings for consumer confidence, for example, are off the, off the scale. That you know, Consumer confidence is going up enormously in the States. And I think even in the United States, as polarized as it is, there will be um, uh, a payback for Joe Biden. There was an interesting article in The Economist, I think it was this week, talking about precisely this issue. And God bless them, some academics have noticed that the salience of economic data for electorates in the United States tends to be very short-lived. The window is very narrow. They don't remember what happened two years ago, but they do remember what happened two months ago. So, so in other words, you're saying that if inflation behaves over the next eight or nine months, uh, it could swing the election for Biden? I think if that's one conclusion. And the other is that as things are getting better, and in particular, if mortgage rates come down this year, that's the thing that's going to impact them this week. Because essentially, the argument is that a voters' attention spans to economic data uh, are very short. And there, there is some evidence of persistence in some areas, but um, the argument is that the, the, the improving economy will eventually help Biden. The other thing that I think is going to help Biden is the absolute dis... It, it, we've, we're used to dysfunction in Washington. I'm, I'm stretching to fi- try and find words that dis- describe just how dysfunctional it is at the moment. And it's Ukraine and Israel geopolitics that I think very important to understand what's been going on, just how weird and messed up it has become, even relative to the way US politics has been over the last few years, thanks to Donald Trump. So Biden wanted to help Ukraine and Israel, right, with a lot of money in the the back end of last year. And he knew that there are, in the MAGA wing, the, the Trump wing of the Republican Party, in Congress, there are Putin fans. There are people who flutter their eyelids whenever Putin's name is mentioned. They like him. They want him to win. So in order to appease these guys and uh, and girls, um, they Biden decided to bundle up aid for Ukraine, money to defeat these people's friend Putin, with uh, a, bought, a whole bunch of cash for de- building the wall. Not literally, but to, to do things with immigration that Biden didn't want to do, but these... Uh, people on the right wing of the of the Republican Party did want to do, and they got very close to doing a deal. So this is bizarre in and of itself. That that in in order to get one thing, one side had to concede on the other, which I suppose is is normal in negotiation. But you had a spending bill that essentially was about aid for Ukraine and Israel on the one hand, and money spent on immigration at the Mexican border on the other. It was a two measure bill. Weird. Then Donald Trump steps in and says, whatever you do, do not do a deal on the Mexican border. Doesn't matter, because what he wants is chaos on the Mexican border right up until the moment he's elected, so that he can promise between now and then to solve that chaos. He wants to create the chaos that he's going to promise to solve. You couldn't make it up. And so the MAGA Republicans then said, "Okay, we're not going to vote for this bill. And so now they're having to strip out the aid for Ukraine and Israel separate it from the spending on the border bill in order to get money for Ukraine, which even in the United States, 
the saner members of Congress have realized if you don't arm Ukraine, you're going to end up in a war with Russia in five, ten years' time, or what all those sorts of fears are very much um, around. So it's so dysfunctional. It's so weird. I think some people, even in the United States, have noticed that this is not just mad now. It's madness on steroids. And I think at the margin, that clearly won't affect Donald Trump's base, but it'll turn more of the neutral voters off him. The marginal voter will now say, look, I could take some of this chaos in the past, but this is just nuts. So I think the improving economy and the escalating madness of of the Washington political scene are turning Trump voters off. So I think that the geopolitical situation from the point of view of lack of escalation so far in the Middle East and the fact that I regard the odds of Trump being re-elected as shrinking now, um, I think the geopolitical situation is getting better, Jim. I I wish I could agree with you. I mean, I I read some of the political science stuff that you refer to in The Economist about recency bias amongst the electorate. So in other words, it's the, the, you know, the most recent inflation readings and growth readings that will really determine how they vote in the opinion poll or in the in the election, excuse me. If you look at the latest nation, nationwide opinion poll shows Trump with a narrow lead, okay, and if the election was held in the morning, uh, the expectation is that he would win, Trump would win the election. And if you look at the the nature of the U.S. political system, it appears that six states really, the swing states, will determine. And Trump would have to win two or three of those to probably guarantee himself the presidency. Uh, I, I have to say, I at this point, if I was to put money on, um, I would put money on Trump to win the election. Uh, obviously, it's a stupid thing to say with eight or nine months to go or at least be, be, before the election actually happens. And lots can happen over that period. But I, I wouldn't be quite as sanguine as yourself at the moment about that. Um, oh, I in my, in my defence, Your Honour, um, I wouldn't say it was sanguine. Uh, I'm advance, advancing tentative hypotheses. Maybe it's just motivated reason, reasoning, yeah. to use another behavioural uh, term. And I'm just describing the situation that I would most like to actually happen. Yeah. But I am trying to be a, as dispassionate as I can about something that it's impossible to be dispassionate about. Yeah. And I know that I do not want... Every bone in my being doesn't want Trump to win. But I am trying to to, to think this thing through. So uh, I am pleased that these academics are pointing out that recency bias that you're talking about. One of the things that perhaps more lightheartedly I am worried about is the curse of the economist. As you know, we both noticed over many years, whenever the economist starts to predict something, it's time to go the other way. And given that The Economist this week is writing about, again, very tentatively, why Biden might do better than expected for the reasons that we've discussed, I think, oh, God, why did The Economist have to put that up in its headlines? But anyway, it's not it, The Economist isn't wrong about everything. It's just wrong, usually wrong about a lot. Jim, there's been a ton of economic data from all around the world this week. How are you going to summarize it in 30 seconds? Uh, it'll take more than 30 seconds. I, I've given you 14 minutes talking about global geopolitics, so um, indulge me for a little bit. On Wednesday of this week, the US Federal Reserve's Interest Rate Setting Committee, the FOMC, 
left interest rates unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half percent. It described the economy as expanding at a solid pace, a labor market that is moderated, but which remains strong, an inflation that is easing, but which remains elevated. And that pretty much sums up the US economy at the moment in a very succinct way that's difficult to disagree with. But it went on to recognize that the risks to achieving its employment and inflation target are moving into better balance. And and that, I guess, describes a soft landing or a Goldilocks scenario. Uh, But it deemed that it would not be appropriate to reduce interest rates until it achieves greater confidence that inflation is moving sustainably towards the 2% target. Okay, so in other words... The Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates, but not just yet. It's going to wait for um, a little bit more confidence that inflation is under control, um, that the economy is stable. Um, So that economic backdrop actually, you know, feeds into the narrative about helping Biden's election prospects. Certainly, that will be the logical conclusion. Uh, We got on Thursday the manufacturing index, the ISM, um, jumped to 50.7%. And in in this index, a reading above 50 means that more companies are expanding than contracting. It's important, I think, to say that was a surprise, wasn't it, Jim? It was a surprise, yeah. It it, it jumped significantly from 47.6. It was the strongest reading since September 22, okay? And it comes alongside the last reading for the services sector, and we haven't the updated one yet, but the last reading for the services sector shows that index at 52.9. So that certainly suggests an economy that is expanding at a reasonable pace. But but of course, the, the big quandary is, what does all of this mean for interest rates? And I, I, I want to talk about an article that was in the Financial Times written by our friend Martin Sanbu um, on Thursday of this week. But before I do, um, we saw on Friday morning the FAO food price index falling to this falling for the sixth consecutive month, and it's now at the lowest level since February 2021. And cereals, for example, are at the lowest level since December 2020. Okay, so clearly food was a huge driver of inflation on the way up. And it's now starting to move in a very positive direction, at least from an inflation perspective. But this brings me to the article by Martin Sanbu. Martin Sanbu has always been in the transitory inflation camp. You know, he he, he certainly believed that central banks around the world were wrong to tighten interest rates so aggressively in the face of what he believed always was a supply-driven inflationary shock rather than an inflationary shock driven by excessive demand. And I do think that pretty much is consistent with what we've been saying over the last couple of years, by and large. Sanbu points out that prices basically stopped rising last summer, autumn, largely because the two big supply-side shocks, food and energy, started to behave themselves. Okay, and he, as I say, he, he said that excess demand was never a problem, that it was pretty much um, a couple of big supply, shi- supply side shocks moving through the economy and that these supply side shocks have moved through the economy in a period of 
16 or 17 months, which I think is quicker than anybody would have anticipated, including Sanbu himself, who was on the team transitory side. Um, and he argues that the monetary policy tightening that we've seen has not brought inflation down through its impact on the labor markets because labor markets remain very strong at 3.7% unemployment rate in the state, 6.7% in the euro area. And he concludes that we really don't understand how monetary policy works. His final conclusion is that central bankers never needed to tighten rates by as much as they did, that inflation would have come down anyway. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is really important and... Uh, I think he's saying a number of really important things. The first is a pure statistical numbers-based thing that uh, might sound geeky, but actually is incredibly important because it tells us the mechanism whereby central banks are actually getting this wrong. Inflation is a change in the price level. And so if we describe the price level as 100 and it goes up to 101, we have 1% inflation. What's actually happened to that price level, not inflation, not the, not the actual percentage change in it, but the price level for many countries, including here in Europe, but also the United States, since mid to late summer, the price level has either been basically flat or falling, so that inflation on a month-to-month basis has been next to non-existence. It's a peculiarity, a quirk of the numbers that because we had inflation during the first seven, eight, nine months of the year, that still appears in all of the headline numbers that you see quoted, which are year over year numbers. The latest inflation numbers that we've had in Europe, including Ireland, are typically for December 23 relative to December 22. And it fails almost completely to acknowledge that for three or four months now in many countries, Inflation is non-existence, literally. And many people are surprised to hear that. Now, the debate in the States is focused on whether or not that's likely to continue because I think of Sanbu's second point is that the supply shock is over. Because in the United States, you could argue, yes, the supply shock is over, which is why the price level has stopped going up. It's flat as a pancake, almost. But you've now got demand issues going on in the States. And the Fed wants to be sure that these demand things uh, that are going on, the strong economy that you and I keep talking about, 
you mentioned the ISM manufacturing, surprising on the upside, as so many economic indicators do in the States these days, that there could well be demand effects on inflation now about to follow the supply effects which have worked their way through the system. And so there is, I think, a legitimate debate in the States that justifies the Fed waiting for a while. That situation just isn't true in Europe. Not at all. There is no demand for anything in Europe. I exaggerate to make the point. These demand issues that are present across the Atlantic are not present in yeah. Europe. The supply, supply shock has, yeah. the supply shock has worked its way through the system. It's over. It's time for the ECB. The time has come and gone for them to start cutting rates. They face a different kettle of fish when it comes to the nature of the inflation problem that they face. You and I have talked about this a lot. Sandbu has put it brilliantly there in the way that I think I've just managed to sort of summarize. But do read his article. The, the other really important point that he makes is that if you think that central banks have been responsible for the fall in inflation that we've seen, it can't have come via the labor market. Because in the models that central banks or macroeconomists use, there's a connection between the labor market and the rate of inflation. And if the labor market stays tight, the rate of inflation doesn't come down. The labor market has in reality stayed tight everywhere, even in Europe, and the rate of inflation has collapsed, suggesting that whatever the mechanism for inflation is, it isn't wages. And so that points to the supply shock argument that we talked about earlier on. And if you don't think, if you say, if you think the central banks are responsible for bringing inflation down, it therefore behoves you to tell us what mechanism, what was the channel of influence? And nobody knows what that is. I haven't seen a credible one. So that speaks to your point that you emphasize there in your narrative, Jim, which is that nobody actually knows anything about any of this, do they? No, not really. They, they have no idea how monetary policy works through the system. But listen, um, you know, it's, it's Sandbrew's piece is strong. It's compelling. And as I say, uh, we like it probably because it suits the narrative we've been running with over the last couple of years. But uh, the bottom line is, you know, central bankers are going to start cutting interest rates. It's a question of when rather than whether. And uh, certainly for Irish and European listeners to this podcast, you know, the good news is that the ECB's next meeting in March probably won't cut interest rates, but uh, it's only a question of when the ECB has to start cutting rates. So that's good news. Chris, I want to uh, cover, there's a couple of things I'd like to talk about today. One, I certainly want to address the issues in farming around Europe at the moment. Okay, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But we had a big week of technology results. Um, mixed bag. We had Apple showing a significant loss down 13% in Q4. It didn't make a loss, Jim. It was, it was just... Sorry. No, I didn't say loss. Sorry. Let me finish, please. A loss of its market in China. Okay. Sales are down 13% in quarter four. And China typically accounts for 20% of its sales. Okay, so it's losing market in China. That's the point I was going to make. But obviously, uh, this was the worst decline in China since the 2018 holiday season. So the markets reacted negatively to that. Uh, We had Google's shares falling 7%. Microsoft's shares falling again following their results earlier in the week. There was a negative response. But then you look at in the last 24 hours, Meta and Amazon reported very strong results. And the narrative around that is that the cost-cutting 
and the, uh, the, the the business refocus that they have engaged in over the last couple of years is really working in terms of delivering shareholder value. Uh, obviously, the staff that have been let go uh, wouldn't quite have the same narrative, but the market responded positively to that. So overall, I think the tech results were a pretty mixed bag, but you can see some companies in that sector continuing to grow very, very strongly. And of course, the theme that comes across, particularly in Microsoft results, was the importance of AI as a driver of the future business model. Yeah, the meta, uh, which owns Facebook and Instagram, uh, young people don't use Facebook anymore, but they do use Instagram. Uh, yeah. The share price reaction, not just overnight, but really over the last 12 months or so has been just extraordinary. Meta has turned itself around in the most extraordinary way, at least as displayed by its share price. And its share price after hours last night, the market isn't open as we speak, but there is after hours trading. It was up 14% which for a mega company represents over, I think, $100 billion of added market value. Uh, whether it's real value or not <laughs> remains to be seen, but a, a, an extraordinary move for a massive company. And it just speaks to the way in which these, these particular stocks are the market darlings. They've been called the Magnificent Seven. And I probably could list them Meta, uh, Microsoft, Apple, Google or Alphabet, uh, NVIDIA, Amazon, I think, is that seven? Um, but I think it was Goldman Sachs the other day that a, a talk, the their strategist, a guy called David Costin, reminded us that in the original movie of The Magnificent Seven, do you know how many of them actually survive? Three. Three, okay. So he, he was issuing a warning that uh, this is beginning to look a bit like the dot-com bubble of uh, 24 years ago. And uh, to be very careful that the, the, the super soar away U.S. stock market is being driven by seven companies and that there are uh, hundreds of others that aren't doing nearly so well. And even these super seven, not all of them will continue to do well. But how many times in your career have you heard this story about the U.S. stock market being driven just by a few companies, Jim? Uh, yeah, it's been a constant theme over many years. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we should just all lie down and get used to it, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, uh, very much so. Uh, Chris, I said I wanted to talk about um, farming and what's happening in Europe a little bit. Um, and, I, and I guess it's because I come from a farming background in Waterford and it's, it's always an area uh, that interests me for emotional reasons, if nothing else. But I also see and recognize the importance of farming as a driver of rural economic activity. Um, and indeed of national economic activity in this country. But we are seeing some very disturbing scenes of protests around Europe at the moment. We saw in Brussels on Thursday, French farmers uh, burning stuff and throwing eggs and stones at the European Parliament. And the video footage I saw of that reminded me of what I saw at the end of November when I emerged from the Gresham Hotel into the protests in Parnell Square and O'Connell Street uh, that famous night. So the French farmers certainly do it in style, but uh, I, I get a sense that this is just another symptom of the breakdown of civil society around the world. But anyway, we have extreme farmer protests happening in countries like Poland, Germany, Belgium, um, and of, of course, France at the, at the moment. And um, the, the, the common theme through all of these forecasts is that 
you know, farmers are worried about cheap imports, EU regulations, particularly in relation to the environment. Uh, the the fact that 4% of land now has to be fallow, the whole re-wetting scheme that the European Union is pushing, um, higher costs and I, I guess energy and oil prices, sorry, energy and labour costs have been significant issues. Uh, in Germany, we saw the German government cut the diesel subsidy um, recently. Uh, we saw a tax rebate for a rebate for agricultural vehicles being scrapped. So that really pissed the German farmers off. Um, in France, we have cheap imports from Ukraine and Mercosur causing significant problems. Um, so the, the, the themes are very common to all of these farmers' protests. And in Ireland... There's a lot um, of them, themes. Oh, a lot of themes. Oh, absolutely. Are yeah, they protest- me thinks they protest too much. Well, I mean, I I was I got thinking about this on Wednesday night. Uh, I got saw on social media actually. I think it was Warford Local Radio's website had a photograph and a video of a group of farmers down in Waterford. Um, not quite. I wouldn't describe it as a protest. It was a peaceful bringing out of tractors at can night. I, can I read something out to you? And I saw the photograph of my darling brother-in-law and my darling nephew um, in the photograph. So that got me thinking about this and I've been slagging them ever since. Can I read something out to you that I offer without comment, without saying I approve or disapprove? It's just an exchange I saw on Twitter, okay? Yeah. Somebody called Tig Murphy, no idea who he is, tweeted um, yesterday, that, talking about Ireland now, Irish roads are clogged with 100,000 euro tractors as their owners are complaining about feck knows what. And a professor of economics from DCU, I think he is, I won't name him for sake for fear of embarrassing him. It's on Twitter if you want to go and have a look. Uh, retweeted this with the comment, they don't even know themselves what they're protesting about, but they always know that they want some more subsidies. And while pretending to be looking after the environment, they want to continue a derogation to pollute more. Chris, that's a lot of bollocks, to be honest. Um you know, the people who tweeted that stuff should try farming to see what it's like. I mean, it's become incredibly volatile. Um, in 2022, for example, um, farm incomes here were up by 28.3%. It was a really good year because the elevation of global commodity prices, particularly dairy, had a, had a very beneficial impact. But then last year, the operating surplus is down by 32.5%. Um, so it, it's it's a very volatile environment, okay? Since, since tw- I think it was 2015, when the quote the milk quotas, for example, were abolished, dairy prices have become much more volatile. So it's an incredibly volatile, tough working life, a tough environment, and clearly they saw a massive increase in fertilizer costs, energy prices, labor supply, and cost is a big issue. Um, they have these EU regulations coming down on them. So th- there's lots of stuff going on that w- would make you think, well, actually, farmers do have uh, quite an argument to make here. But what does the data the say, Jim? What's the, what does the data about farming income say? Are they going up or down? Well, I, I told you there that in 2022, they went up 28.3%. Wait, sorry, I wanted to ask, 23... is that European at the European level? No, that's or... Ireland. Sorry, that's oh, Ireland. Okay. Yeah. And down 32.5% last year. So it's it's difficult to manage. And of course, 
um, interest rates going up as dramatically as they have having an impact as well. So it's it's a tough environment, but at an EU level, the whole common agricultural policy going back many years has always tried to promote the sustainability of, I don't mean sustainability in an environmental sense, the sustainability of farming as uh, an important driver of food security. And, and Chris, if you look at the deal that the EU is doing, the Mercosur deal with South American countries, you know, there are imports coming into Europe now from countries that operate at significantly more lax regulatory environment than do European food producers. So EU trade policy actually um, is also pissing farmers off. And I, and I certainly would have some sympathy with that. Um, so there's, it's, it's a nuanced argument, okay. But um, I, I defer to your, to your much, much know, greater no, no, knowledge no, no, than Chris. me. Um, but what, one of the things, yeah. it's about perceptions as well. And here in the UK, farmers don't get an awful lot of sympathy these days uh, for one reason, actually. And it's, it's not unconnected to the kind of things we've been talking about. They, they are also impacted by all of these things that, that you listed there, the various pressures facing farming. But the one thing we're hearing more and more of these days is that they're complaining about Brexit and the consequences for Brexit for them. And that immediately loses the sympathy vote here in the UK yeah. because the farming community was very, very pro-Brexit. Absolutely. And yeah. so, it, you know, you've lo- this is just PR. I know people are entitled to change their minds. Absolutely. But uh, farming in this country, because of that, I think have, has lost a considerable part of the PR war. Yeah. Chris, there's, there's a couple of things I read during the week that actually I haven't been able to verify. OK, and any news one gets nowadays, one has to treated with deep skepticism. Uh, but I, I heard one theory that um, the sensible farmer unions in France have sort of withdrawn from these protests and that it's been increasingly driven by the far right. I, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's one narrative I've heard. And the second one I heard was that the Belgian farmers who are protesting at the moment, that one of their gripes is about cheap imports from other countries and they include beef imports from Ireland in that list. So on Wednesday night, we had farmers in Waterford out protesting in solidarity with uh, their brethren across Europe. But some of those brethren actually um, are pissed off with Irish uh, beef exports into their country. So it's it's, mm. it's a very nuanced picture. Complicated, but I, but I, have I'd say. Say, I have to say the, the, the overall... Um, images we get from what farmers are doing at the moment is very unedifying. I have to say, um, despite all of those pressures, I think what the French farmers are at and the German farmers is totally unconscionable, to be honest. But that's mm. it. Yeah. Once you stray into politics, as opposed to sticking to your lane, I think you're, you're, you, you do, get, do get into difficulties. You do, Jim, indeed. I've got nothing left of you. Anything before we shut well, up for the weekend? Chris, I would just like to briefly mention a topic that we've discussed on this podcast a number of times, how much is a CEO worth? And what brought it to mind this week was that a judge in Delaware voided Elon Musk's $55 billion pay package as boss of Tesla. And this ruling came as a result of a lawsuit that was launched by a shareholder in Tesla. And the judge said that the biggest ever package for a CEO is unfathomable. I leave yeah. it there. Well, I'll, I'll answer your question, Jim. And I think that nobody, 
and this is very judgmental. I can't. There's no science behind it whatsoever. Nobody is worth more than two hundred grand a year. Nobody. That's my my answer to your question. And the way in which society should deal with anybody that earns two hundred grand a year is they should allow them to keep some of their income, but the tax rate on anything over two hundred grand should be ninety percent. Ah, Jesus, Chris. Good luck. Speak to you on Monday.